Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive issues in the history of popular music, and sometimes simply in the history of philosophy itself. This episode, I'm joined once again by Eric Taxier to discuss Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, this time Book 1, Chapters 5 and 6. Thank you for joining us. Enjoy. Joined again by by Eric Taxier, and we're going to now discuss chapters five and six from Book One of the Nicomachean Ethics. And they're in a, a relatively there's 13 chapters in the first book. I would argue, and I will argue when we get to the 13th chapter, that it doesn't really belong to Book One. It belongs to Book Two, um, and that shouldn't surprise anyone. I'm going to be brief about this. But we don't, uh, these divisions into books and chapters. That's not Aristotle's divisions. These are traditional. They go back to the Middle Ages, uh, but um, but they're not Aristotle's divisions. They're they're sort of uh, divisions that have been foisted upon the work by an editor. Once again, remember that these are probably lecture notes. They're, it's not meant to be a complete treatise that's finished. They're probably lecture notes that, that Aristotle used. Um, so sometimes the divisions into books will seem a little arbitrary, although for the most part, I don't think it is. I think the editor chose wisely. And you can even see chapter 13 as a preview for what's coming in book two. And so even that doesn't bother me much. But what I mean by central is that chapters five and six are we're coming up to the turning point, and the turning point is chapter seven. Chapter seven is where the heavy lifting really begins. Right now, everything is sort of setting things up. Uh, chapters uh, one through four, uh, which we've already discussed, uh, we're really talking about the idea that that things are done for a reason. I think that should be more or less self-evident, and that they're done for a good, meaning that we don't usually do things to harm ourselves, uh, although perhaps sometimes we do, but but one might argue that even then we're doing it for a greater good, right? Uh, uh, or at least we might construe it that way. Like, um, yeah, This is getting a little more personal than I meant to get, but when I was growing up, my brother used to cut himself a bit, and I would ask him why he would do that, and he'd say to, to feel something or whatever. So that sounds horrible, and it was horrible, and he had to get help to get over that, but you could see that the way he answered was that it was for a good. It might not be good for him in our opinions, but he was doing it for a good. Right. Just like somebody who is is robbing a house, they're doing it for their own good, for their own enrichment, even if we don't think it's necessarily a good thing. Um, and then the rest of, of books or chapters one through four go through a kind of uh, fleshing out of that idea that if things are done for a good reason, then sometimes certain things are done for the good of something else, which might be done for something else. And that leads to a hierarchy of ends. Right. He, he says that it's unlikely because he doesn't believe in in hierarchies like this going on to infinity it's unlikely that that would be the case he hasn't proven that it's not the case yet but he's sort of building on uh his ideas about about hierarchies and and bad infinities in order to to demonstrate this um I'm probably forgetting a few things that we've already established in the first four chapters that, that but uh, those are the the main 
issues, right? He has not yet. He said that happiness is going to be the pinnacle, but he's also said happiness by itself is totally undefined, right? That uh, that he's he's chosen happiness in part because everyone seems to agree that the highest good in life is happiness. What they don't agree on is what the hell happiness is, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, so chapter 7 will eventually give us get us closer, at least, to his definition of happiness. So then what do chapters 5 and 6 do? They, they do a couple of things, uh, or, or several things. The main thing they do is they offer candidates for happiness that will fail. And three of those, three or four, depending on how you want to count them up, candidates are dealt with in chapter 5. And those are more like common assumptions. Uh, not all of them. Some of them are for people that are more tied to their body, some people that are more tied to their mind. But he doesn't give any names of people that, that support this view, really. It's just that, that these are common assumptions about the good in life. And then chapter 6 takes on Plato, and, and we'll deal with that in the next segment. So he's really what he's doing is he's clearing space for his answer, which will come in chapter seven and will be our discussion in the next episode. But now let's turn to these two chapters. All right. So in chapter five, he's introducing the the theory, as it's sometimes referred to, of three lives that there that that if we're going to find out how we relate to happiness, the best way to do this is to look at the lives that we already lead, that, that we're, most of us aren't going to think about lives that nobody seems to be experiencing and say, well, that would be happiness. They're, they're, we're typically going to be drawn to the idea of looking at lives that are actually being led, that are being lived, and to assess happiness through them. And he posits that there are three candidates. And I think, and Eric, I'm curious what you think, I think he's presenting these not disingenuously. In other words, he's presenting them as real candidates. They're not things that he's going to, even though he's going to move through the arguments fairly quickly, and so it might feel dismissive, I don't think he's actually being dismissive here. I think he thinks there are good reasons to think that these three candidates are actual possible candidates. Yeah, uh, especially if we take him at his word. He, he basically says that people uh, reasonably come to that, whatever right. sense of the good that they have uh, from their lives. And so then, if that's the tr if that's the case, then and you're drawing on the way that you you are living your life to come to that sense of the good, then um, you know uh, he thinks that these sort of, I mean, we, we can use the word philosophy in a couple of ways, but uh, when we uh, commonly talk about people having a philosophy of the way that they live, you know, th there's that there's that sense that they're living according to some kind of basic principle, right? And and he's sort of he's basically I think getting at those. Uh, the types of basic principles that people sometimes get out of, uh, you know, just trying to live their lives. Yeah, uh, I think that's a, a, a worthwhile point to think about in some depth, right? That that even if you're not a philosopher, the things that you choose to do do present a kind of philosophy of life that that. You know, we, we sometimes joke around, you know, don't do what I do. Do what I say. Don't do what I do. But when you do things, you are postulating that this is a viable way to live. You're not necessarily postulating it's the best way to live. But uh, inevitably, just because you've done them, uh, you are postulating it as a way to live. And if Aristotle's right and we tend to pursue things because we think they're good for us, even if we're mistaken in that view or even if we're short-sighted in that view, then they are all – positing some appropriate, reasonable way to live. Mm -hmm. In the three ways for him here, these three lives are a life of gratification, a life of politics, and a life of contemplation. Right? Now, before he goes into any depth about these things, um, he's, he gives some criteria for how we're to assess 
what the good would be, right? And I'm summarizing. I'm not going to read uh, from it because I the the translation here gets a little turgid for my taste. Uh, but if if Eric feels at all that I've gone wrong in my summary, he'll correct me. The first is that it has to be distinctly human, and that's going to play a huge role in the so-called function argument in um, chapter seven. So here we're getting a hint of the function argument, but he already starts laying it out, right? Uh, he says that pl- that we share certain elements of the soul, and this comes from De Anima, but it's also platonic, uh, that, that we share certain elements of the soul with lower forms of life. So plants and animals and, and humans, we all have a nutritive element of the soul. We, we grow, we need to, to eat and to sleep and have certain things that just make us function as living entities. And if, if, if the good here, the point, you can see the function arguments already basically in play here in utero uh, or in noose, um, that what he's saying is that if there is a happiness that's for human beings, then it needs to be distinct for human beings. That if it's uh, the type of happiness that can be shared by plants or animals, then it's probably not. Now, we don't have to agree with this, but I can, I sort of see where he's coming from. What do you think, Eric? It seems to me like the basic idea here is that there's a kind of, and Aristotle, of course, is something of an essentialist. I think that he's sometimes, I think he's sometimes callously branded as an essentialist in the wrong kind of way. But, but he does think, obviously, that there is something about a book that makes it a book and not something else. There's something about a, a, an aardvark that makes it an aardvark and not a um, raccoon or what have you. Um, and that there's something about a human that makes that, that thing distinctly human. Mm-hmm. And so the good for an aardvark is the thing that's good for an aardvark, not necessarily for a, a raccoon. And the thing that's good for a human is what's good for a human, not necessarily for anything else. That, that if we're looking for what's good about this for this distinct thing, then we have to look at the nature of that distinct thing. Sure. Uh, I think that basic approach uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, if we were reading De Anima, we could probably start arguing with Aristotle or against Aristotle about how how quickly we can jump to a, a very broad you know, definition of what makes something human versus, sure. you know, like, for example, is it rationality? It seems like a lot of animals have something like rationality or, you know, is it language? Well, even then, it seems like you know animals communicate with each other and so forth. Right. So it's possible to sort of um, I would I would say quibble with Aristotle here uh, while still basically accepting his approach to the problem. Yeah, and just to be clear, uh, I mean his his answer is that it's rationality, right? He he would say that that while animals have language like capacities that. Our language is shot through with rationality and theirs is not. And part of what he means by rationality seems to me from reading De Anima, from reading the metaphysics, from reading um, parts of this treatise, Nicomachean Ethics, that part of his notion of rationality has to do with um, reflection and justification and contemplation of abstract things. And, And so when he uses the word contemplation, he doesn't mean just randomly thinking. He means thinking about abstract subjects like like metaphysics, like the nature of, of God or the nature of being um, or the, the way in which math works, you know, thinking about the Pythagorean theorem and whatever. And he doesn't think that animals are likely to do that, even if they have some rational things that are, are similar, quasi-rational capacities, let's put it that way. And, and the other reason I'm playing this kind of 
careful game is to follow Aristotle. I don't personally know whether or not dogs have reason. I, I it seems to me empirically that they do certain things that seem like they do. You know that they do seem to make actual decisions and not just drawn on by their um, by their hunger and their desire or whatever. But uh, but someone like Sam Harris would say, well, they don't and neither do you, <laughs> right, as a, as a human being, that that's all just uh, – there's a sort of illusion of, of free will and of choice. Um, but Aristotle doesn't think that. So in sticking with Aristotle, he would make a distinction between the quasi-rational capacities of an animal and our actual rationality. And for his argument, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to grant that. I'm not going to – I'm not just going to stop here and slam the book shut. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> so the first criterion of the good is it has to be distinctly human, and we're going to see this fleshed out in the function argument in chapter seven. And this, tie, cri- this ties uh, th- these criteria, by the way. I, I, does he actually say them in just list them out in the fifth chapter, or are you getting this like from that threefold division of the the ple- life of pleasure and politics and contem- the contemplative life? I, I feel like it's pretty – it's spelled out in the ways that he um, disqualifies gotcha. the various things. So for so pleasure – yeah, pleasure then is the life basically of a non-human or of an animal or, or whatnot, right? Like exactly. A, gotcha. Exactly. Because and we're, So in a way what I'm doing is I'm trying to be a little schematic and maybe I shouldn't have done it that way. Maybe I should have just gone through it and then – pull out the these criteria after but i think it'll be it'll make it easier to see things if we spell them out but for now you're right let's do it this way let me finish spelling them out but (laughs) let's take them as not proven right let's take them as as just things that i'm suggesting are going to be the criteria and then i'm pretty sure you'll agree with me that they are the Mm -hmm. criteria yeah all right so the second criterion then would be the good must be our own Right. It's not overly dependent on external goods and conditions. And so this is a sort of preview of what will be the self-sufficiency um, argument. Right. The, the, in other words, it's got to be something of an internal good. Um, it's not some, it can't be something that's so easily taken away. So, so for instance, the last thing he's going to discuss in this chapter is wealth, right? And that's an easy one to see. Wealth can easily be taken away from you. It's not an internal good. It's the, by definition an external good. Um, I don't mean wealth of experience or any analogies. I mean actual monetary wealth, right? Yeah. It's an external good, and so uh, therefore it's not really our own. And then lastly, the third criterion is it must be complete, right? And, and we'll, we'll work on what that means. But complete and self-sufficient, those are two criteria he's going to talk about in a lot greater detail starting in Chapter 7 and going on from there. Um, so we're not... We're not done with any of these, actually, because they're all going to come back in Chapter 7 and we'll continue to come back. But let's see if I've even got it right now. So let's look at the various things. He says, gratification, pleasure, can't be the end of life. It can't be the point. It can't be happiness because it's, it fails because it's slattish, right? Uh, and it's not specifically human. So it, it fails both on on the first and second criterion. It's not specifically human because uh, animals also feel pleasure, maybe even plants, I don't know. But, uh, but animals certainly feel pleasure. So it's not specifically human. Um, but also it's not really our own um, in the sense of being... Ter- pleasure is internal, of course. We feel it inside. But it's dependent on, on externalities or at least pleasure in the sense of gratification um, is, is dependent on externalities. Uh, if my life is 
is uh, horrible and I, I'm not finding any gratification in it, then there, that's, you know, there's, it's not internal. It's, it can easily be taken away from mm-hmm. me. Now, you can say, of course, you can find pleasure in contemplation and in virtuous activity, but that's going to be different than the kind of gratification he's talking about now. So that one fails on, on um, at least the first criterion and probably the first two. Now, the next one's more interesting. He says honor, right? And he says honor is superficial ultimately because it depends too much on the opinions of others. So again, mm-hmm. it's external. That, that in this construal, and see what you think, Eric, but it seems to me he's saying that honor is only, you, you don't really honor yourself, right? Uh, that, that honor comes from someone else, uh, from people outside you. So you earn a PhD or you, you win a race or whatever else. And, you know, you might want win, you might run a, a beautiful race and have a time that no one else has matched in the history of the world. But if you're the only one that knows it, that's not honorable, right? Uh, you'd have to prove it. You have to show it. Uh, and so honor depends on, on the external, Yes. Uh, so then you, you're trying to get, if you're competing in the uh, Greek Olympics, you're trying to get crowned with laurels. Um, you're trying right. to get someone else to crown you with laurels. So it really depends on, on their sort of, uh, I don't know, their, their interest in your own, um, you know, wh- whether they respect you, that sort of thing. So it's conditional. I agree. Yeah. It's, uh, he's yeah. basically saying it's, it's conditional on other people. Uh, right. But he also sort of suggests that it's contingent or at least that is kind of a vanishing momentary good like that can it can be easily taken away so sure yeah it could it could turn out that um uh you were doping the whole time in some sort of ancient greek doping scandal and then there you go yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean uh, that's a, that's an interesting that the whole doping thing what a, what an interesting example right barry bonds or lance armstrong or whatever this idea that they they achieve these incredible feats of of human strength and endurance and then that they're dishonored when you find out that there's some kind of adjunct to that right Mm -hmm. but of course you're drawing a line and i'm not i'm not here to try to justify doping or anything i don't i'm not a sports person i don't really care (laughs) but ultimately i mean everything you do is going to contribute uh to to the success in that right so so protein shakes aren't a problem but protein shakes aren't something that was available to humans before modernity, right? Um, now, you could say, well, it's just augmenting what's already there, but so is doping to some extent, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, all steroids are doing is they're augmenting things that are already there. So so you're into this weird place with with that, right? That, and I think what it does is it shows that Aristotle's right, that that it's not clear to me, at least, what the exact rules are. I mean, you could say, well, you don't, you don't, engage in doping you don't use steroids sure but why there are other forms of enhancement that are perfectly fine where do we draw the line when it comes to enhancements like the one runner and i don't remember his name i think he wound up killing his wife or girlfriend or whatever but he had the blades remember that guy like his he didn't have feet he had blades instead of feet and he was allowed to run why is that augmentation okay um, and, and, and as far as I know, not, I mean, I, again, I'm not very engaged in sports, so maybe people complained about it, but I know the big thing now is the whole trans thing, right? That, that, uh, some, a trans woman competing in sports and they have unfair muscle mass is, is the argument that's being made. Hmm. Um, and so we're constantly arguing about, or it seems to me from an outsider's point of view, when it comes to sports, people are constantly arguing about what it is that qualifies someone to be honored 
for their sportsmanship and, and, and achievements, yep. right? And that already makes it too much of a qualified good, and that's one of the, right. the issues for Aristotle. Right. And then think about what happens in baseball statistics, right? Like uh, Pete Rose or whatever has an asterisk next to his name. So <laughs> it, it, you still see the, the thing that he was honored for, but then the asterisk is like, yeah, but maybe not really, right? And so it was literally taken away from him with a small diacritical mark. <laughs> you know, I mean, and that's, that's all it takes is to, uh, to do. Uh, and so that shows that honor is a problem. But then he does something that I find really fascinating mm-hmm. and we could easily spend hours talking about this alone he then says well but why do we even pursue honor right we pursue honor in order to convince ourselves that we're good and so we don't want honor from just anyone right if if i like if somebody comes up to me who's clearly uh you know not at all a good person uh who who cheats on their significant other, who beats their children, who steals at every opportunity, and then says to me, you're a good guy, though. What the hell do I care? That doesn't help me feel good about myself. Yeah, of course I'm good to you. You're a reprobate. You're terrible, right? So you don't want honor from just anyone, as Aristotle puts it. You want honor to convince yourself that you're truly good, and you can only get that from someone else that you deem to be truly good. Right. Yeah. So we look for we look for honor, as he puts it, from the prudent, from those who judge well. And um, it seems to be getting closer to what he's looking for. Right. right. Um, we can call it virtue or excellence or whatever. And we can say the, the person defending the kind of political life will say, well, that's that's what I mean by honor. I don't simply mean getting crowned with laurels. I, I mean, uh, you know, being an excellent person, you know, living an excellent right. life, a, a virtuous life or however you want to put it. Yeah, and I think that's spot on, that, that he's, he's eking his way toward a better answer. I don't think he's dismissive totally of any of these, including gratification. It's not that gratification and pleasure have no role to play uh, in, a, in a proper life. They do have a role to play, but it can't be as the hierarchical end of things. It's not the organizing end that tells us how to do everything else. Because if all we're looking for is gratification, then we can find that in all sorts of ways in which most of us would uh, not necessarily want to, um, you know, admire. Hmm. So we want we want honor from specific people. And uh, those who we feel judge well, and we want to be honored because of our virtue. That's what he he says. Mm -hmm. So that tells us some interesting things, in my opinion. And and Eric, I'm curious because now we're getting into actual interpretation here, and I could easily be wrong. But it seems to me that what he's saying is that that means that virtue is superordinate to honor. That honor is below and contributes to virtue as a sort of almost in the way that uh, grades contribute to an education. Uh, I can get I can get great grades and have learned nothing. I can also get really poor grades and have learned a lot. But in general, grades are a way of measuring how well I'm retaining in knowledge and how well I'm developing skills. Yep, that sounds right to me. Virtue basically is what grounds uh, honor when we say something is honorable. Right. Yeah. And so that brings us back to, you know, what was broached in the early chapters, this idea of, of superordinate and subordinate sciences and crafts and, and goods and so on, right? And the example he had used before, uh, one of the examples that he used before was um, that, that bridal making is subordinate to horse riding, 
Mm-hmm. But what we didn't, we haven't done so far, and it's actually quite important because it's the sort of crux of, of a big argument in studies on this treatise. Uh, and that argument is sometimes referred to as the dominant versus inclusivist argument. Um, and basically it boils down, it, it, it has a lot of ramifications, but basically it boils down to this. And to my mind, the two best representatives of this are um, John Ackrell on the side of the inclusivist uh, paradigm and um, Richard Kraut on the side of the dominant view. And we're, I'm going to mention these two figures several times in the upcoming episodes because I, I'm reading them both at the moment and I find them both very interesting in various ways. Um, right now we're just just introducing, I mentioned it before, but we're just introducing the, the real concern. Here's the concern. Uh, when we're talking about happiness, is happiness a composite of various goods or is happiness identified with one ultimate good and everything else contributes to that good, right? Um, that's the basic position. So the inclusivist model is that that what we, we wind up having a bunch of virtues or a bunch of goods that we put on par with each other and happiness simply is the sum total of those things and then we have a bunch of other questions that could come out of that but but that's the basic view that that happiness as such is kind of like a tin container of of cookies and the virtues are the cookies inside and they're what really matter nobody cares about the tin container um, but the, the happiness is simply the container that brings them all together and so we're happy once we've gotten all those goods together and the, the happiness is is commensurate with the sum total of that composite. So if it's like a 10-cookie container, then the person with eight cookies is 80% happy, basically. Right, yeah. right, yeah. That would be one way of looking at it. I guess one could make the argument, and I don't, I, I'm not far along, long enough in Ackroll to know for sure whether he makes this argument, but I could imagine someone making the argument that, no, it's not actual happiness until all 10 slots are filled, mm. right? That, that that deficiency makes it less than oh so I maybe mean, there are ten clearly cookies it's less than perfect yeah, yeah some of the cookies are are a little smaller uh, not not quite in the best shape as as, as the others yeah, yeah maybe <laughs> yeah I don't know. but then the dominant view is that there's only one ultimate good one ultimate form of happiness and everything else hmm. contributes to that and here you can start to get a sense of how that's going to work he's clearly said that there's a hierarchy he does seem to in all of almost all of his treatises when he talks about hierarchies he does seem to think of one thing as being the pinnacle but he hasn't established that yet in fact you're going to see in his language uh in these chapters and, and in seven, even in seven where he'll make the comment you know well if there are many goods that are perfect then we choose the most perfect and so this what's the distinction between perfect and most perfect and we'll, we'll talk about that as we go hmm. um but the, the question then becomes here, for our purposes for right now, is how, what is the relationship between the subordinate and the superordinate, right, um, science? So, so using the example of bridal making and horsemanship, if horsemanship is superordinate to bridal making, why and how does that relationship work? You want to have a stab? Oh, well, um, I, it seems like the question is related to is is the uh, bridal making just one part of horsemanship right uh, this might be the more um, is that the the acryl approach uh, i have not right. been reading acryl and kraut but that's what i assume and then yes. the um the other a- element here is then if we're going with the the kraut that um bridal making is in some sense uh leading toward but not identifiable with um with horsemanship, horsemanship. right yeah. exactly 
So Kraut present. Uh, so basically, a this is where Ackroll has a sort of problem because he makes he makes two relationships between the superordinate and the subordinate, and it's not clear when. I mean, he makes it clear when he thinks each should be operative, but Aristotle never makes it seem like there are two. Right? Aristotle always acts like there's only one. And so Kraut might be in the better position just because he never adds its second one. But basically, they both agree that there's at least some kind of normative causal relationship. And let me explain that very quickly. So the idea of the causal is simple enough that without someone making bridles, you're not going to have much horse riding to do because you need a saddle. You need all that stuff. Um, so it's causal in the sense that it supplies some of the um, material that you'll need to pursue the end that you're pursuing, in this case, riding a horse well, right? Hmm. Um, and so the whoever makes horseshoes, uh, right, that contributes to it. Uh, whoever takes care of the horse's nutrition, all that contributes to uh, the whoever built the stable, all of that contributes to horse riding. But but the, so that's that's the the um, causal relationship, right? And they both agree that that's taking place. The normative part, uh, so the the one view of the relationship is normative causal or causal normative, however, whichever order you want. The normative, of course, goes in the other direction. It's the idea that the bridle maker makes decisions about how to make bridles based on what the horse rider needs, right? So uh, he the bridle maker doesn't just arbitrarily decide how a saddle should work. It's based on the, the superordinate science of, of horse riding. And so the causal relationship is going from the sub to the super. In other words, I make this, this bridle, I make a saddle, and then you can use it for horse riding. But the normative goes in the other direction. Because you want to use it for horse riding, I have to make the saddle in a certain way. Now, Ackerel adds to that a part-whole relationship which uh, Kraut points out, and I have to admit I'm somewhat convinced, but I haven't finished either of them yet. Um, Kraut points out that that, uh, that there there is no actual mention of this in Aristotle, that this is Ackroll reading into it. And, and, you know, it's not that Ackroll's wrong to try to interpret the text, but usually when you're bringing up distinctions that don't have a basis in the text directly, then there's, there's, there could be an issue, and that might be the case here, right? And, and what do you um, think uh, leads Ackroll to the part whole thing? Is it the sort of more, is it the generality of the... Well, first let me define it. So the part okay, whole sure. thing is, is simple enough, right? The part whole thing is simple enough. It's the idea that, that the subordinate science is not simply causally related to the superordinate science, but rather becomes a part of it. Now, I don't know, because he doesn't, he doesn't use the bridle making, horse making, uh, horse riding example as one of his examples. I don't know if that applies all the time. I get the impression it's not supposed to apply all the time. Uh, it's supposed to apply in certain cases. Hmm. So, for instance, polit politics or political science, it applies to that, and it applies to the virtues, and it applies to happiness, right? So, for Ackroll, you don't have proper virtue unless you have all the virtues and you don't have proper happiness unless you have all the goods that, that would lead to happiness. Now, he does something a little odd. Maybe. Maybe it's odd. Maybe it's not. Um, and we're going to talk about this more soon. But, but what he does is he doesn't have all the goods available. So in other words, the things that are goods in the sense that they only lead to something else – are not part of happiness for him. It's only the things that are good in themselves, like mm -hmm. honor and virtue and mm -hmm. so on. So, and pleasure. B 
so the things that are good in themselves are part of happiness and they go in the cookie tin. And the things that are only good because they lead to those other goods, they don't go in the cookie tin. But there's no justification for that that I see. If you're going to say that, that there's an inclusivist model of happiness, then all the things like wealth, why wouldn't wealth be part of that, right? Um, included so is, in is the suggestion here that it kind of collapses into the causal normative thing? Like if you do the cookie tin, maybe... Well, what about making the cookies, right? You need the flour and you need the chef who knows what they're doing and so forth. But yeah, I'm not, yeah I'm not sure. I think I think I think you're on the right topic there. I mean, when you use that analogy, it makes it seem more reasonable of a reading, right? Because flour remains in some way in the cookie. But of course, f eating the various ingredients of a cookie will not taste like a cookie. <laughs> Right. True. I mean, that's an important distinction that yeah. those ingredients, they get transformed in making the cookie. And so uh, it seems to me that even if we want to see that relationship with respect to the various goods and happiness, that that the idea of it just being a container of these various goods demotes happiness to a kind of framework rather than a good. It's a framework of goods rather than a good. But I think your analogy actually works better, that, that something gets transformed um, when it comes to those various other goods, when they, when they are tending toward or contributing to or leading toward happiness. So right. these, aren't, these aren't things I'm trying to give answers to yet. Uh, they're things that we're just laying out as, as things to think about here. But, but you can see how that follows from what we were just talking about, that honor is not self-sufficient. Honor is good because of virtue, because it indicates that maybe I truly am virtuous. So virtue is the real thing, mm -hmm. right? Honor is subordinate. And now that, that creates a problem for Ackrell, right? Because Ackrell doesn't give us that kind of metric to deal with. He never gives us, and Kraut does, by the way. Kraut gives a nice little flow chart of how one thing leads into the other, right? But Ackrell doesn't. So for Ackrell, it's hard to tell if, if, he really considers honor as being subordinate to virtue, but it seems to me pretty clear that Aristotle does. And so if we, even if we thought of it as an inclusivist model, like you were saying a moment ago, not all the cookies are the same. Some are better than others, right? And so virtue would be a better cookie than honor. Um, and, and if honor is just there to contribute to virtue or to sort of uh, lead us to, to check out how we are doing in our virtuousness, then is it really on the same level as virtue? Probably not, right? Not that there's just one virtue anyway, but... Yeah, I would even say that it's... Uh, most people reading this just this part, uh, as that was the case with me, would, would come to that more, um, I guess we'll call it Crowdian conclusion, <laughs> that virtue, yeah. he's, he's holding virtue as a, as a sort of better candidate than, um, than honor itself, and then that sort of leads to his own interesting sort of, I don't know if it's a quibble with or just some a tension, I guess, with a, a Socratic tendency to identify virtue with happiness, that the two are one and the same in some sense. Right, right, right. And, and we got to ask ourselves whether or not that's what he winds up doing. And that's what he turns to next, right? And in fact, he says virtue by itself, not including honor, fails because it's incomplete so mm -hmm. now you see now you see why i had the three criterion right because uh gratification fails on criteria one criterion one um and and maybe even criterion two as well honor fails on criterion two uh honor is distinctly human raccoons don't have honor right mm -hmm. but it but it is uh is not 
are totally our own. It depends on externality, so it fails for Criterion 2. And uh, Virtue will fail on based on Criterion 3, and let's see if I can substantiate that. So he says Virtue fails because it's incomplete, and, and Criterion 3 was completion, right? Now, why is it incomplete? It's incomplete because you could be virtuous, but let's say that you have a sleeping sickness where basically you're asleep most of your life, so you're a virtuous person. You would you would help everybody you could if you could, but you can't because you're always asleep, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, or you have other things that are working against you, so that this capacity and virtue in in this sense is a capacity uh, doesn't get realized. So, and so, so it gets its completeness in action. Is, the, is that the right. idea? In the virtuous act, yeah. Well, he hasn't said that yet, but he's leaving the door open, and that yeah, it sort of suggests there. that I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And he says, you know, think about and that, and notice there's something else he slips in. He says, also, someone could suffer great misfortune and you can't call that happiness unless you're just trying to, def- to defend the thesis at all costs. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's interesting, too, because that means one of two things. If I'm acral, that means that happiness has to include wealth, even though acral says it doesn't. He has he's he's now wrong to some extent in his own reading because um, because that's what this implies, at least to me. Right. That that if I'm if I'm constantly without uh, misfortunate, if 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 I'm unhealthy and I don't have any access to money, uh, so I can't do anything. I, I you know, I don't have regular the, the, the Maslow hierarchy of needs. If, if those aren't being met, then I'm not going to be a happy person, even if I am virtuous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a very sort of. Ackerel probably likes that part about misfortune because then you can say, basically, well, circumstances, um, if they can dictate your happiness, then, um, you know, we need to make sure everything, including circumstances, is uh, modulated just so, just so for, your, for your happiness. Well, that's what I think is so interesting. I think they can both make use of this argument. It's mm-hmm. how they make use of it. So, so you're right, I think. I think that is more or less what Ackerel does, that, that those external goods then are necessary because they contribute to the internal goods, but it's only the internal goods that are part of happiness. And it's not clear to me why he makes that distinction, but he does, right? Um, whereas... Crowd, again, I think is in the somewhat stronger position, at least conceptually, because for him, all the goods except for the highest goods are just contributors to whatever that highest good is, which we haven't named yet, just to make sure everyone's on the same page. If you're like, wait, but what's the highest good? We haven't named it yet because he hasn't named it yet. He'll name it. He'll start to name it in book seven. And then if we truly believe Kraut, he doesn't fully name it. I'm sorry, in, in chapter seven of book one. If if we truly believe Kraut, then he doesn't fully name it until uh Book 10 till the end of the treatise. Hmm. Um, but we'll deal with that as we go. Um, all right. So we have a lot of things that are interesting here. Notice that what he's done now, he hasn't dismissed politics as such. What he's done is he said it's not honor and it's not virtue just in the sense of just virtue, mm-hmm. right, of, of just virtue as a capacity. He says that, it, that the highest good can't be gratification because that's too slavish. That's too animal like. Right. And then he's when he should be turning to study or contemplation, he says, oh, we'll discuss that later. So we don't know whether that's a good candidate yet or not. Right. Uh, He's just saying he'll come back to it. But then he throws in a fourth non-contender and that's money seeking. And I don't know why he does it. I'm curious what your thoughts are here. He, he, the reason it fails is obvious. He says it's not choice worthy in itself. You don't want money for itself. You want money because it can get you something else. So, right, whether that is something else that you want to buy or respect of other people or, or even, you know, 
Uh, it contributes to your pride, but whatever it does, money isn't good. You don't want money just for, if, if, for instance, just as a thought experiment, I have a bunch of gold bricks, which I don't, so don't come and rob me. But if I had a bunch of gold bricks and then tomorrow I wake up and gold has been devalued to the point that they're useless, I still have the gold bricks, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I, but the, the, they don't do me any good anymore, and so they're worthless, right? Think like Confederate money. That's an even better example, right? The Confederacy mm. fails, so those, that money's worthless. Uh, and so it's not choice worthy and, and never really was because it's only good insofar as it has the potential to do something else. And once you've taken away that potential, then it's not, it's pointless. Yeah. That sort of has an odd place in the list. It doesn't feel like it was naturally there or should be. So there. why is it there in your opinion? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm really curious. Know. Like, I mean, if, if I were a scholar, I'd probably start hunting for, um, different versions that suggest maybe an editor, you know, in you know, two two hundred A.D. or something, did something weird with it. I have no, Maybe, I have no yeah. clue. It, it just seems a little bit more basic, like it belongs in an earlier chapter, even. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it, yeah, that, I, I think the excellence part or the virtue part, um, basically, that was that was the sort of high point of the chapter. That's yeah. I mean, and there are, even that that distinction, like um, you know, is possession of excellence the same thing as potential excellence? And that kind of leads you to, like, oh, I got to go look up my Dianima and find out that there's this distinction he makes there. And no, they're not. But like um, th th it feels a little bit more like, uh, I don't know, thick, like there's something to dig into. Yeah. 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 I have one hypothesis for why the money lending is there. Um, because of something he hasn't introduced yet that we'll, we'll talk about in greater detail later. But it's one of his tripartite divisions, right? His threefold divisions. That basically when it comes to goods, there are three types of goods, right? And uh, the lowest form of good is a useful good, as something that is purely instrumental in value. And that's what money is. Money is only useful in that it can give us other things, right? Um, whether that's pleasure and gratification, which would be higher than money, or whether it helps us in our virtuous acts, which would be higher than money, or whatever, right? Uh, so, so it's purely uh, a utilitarian good. It's purely instrumental. Um, and that might be why he has it here, because the other goods that he's talked about so far, uh, virtue and honor and gratification, those are all good in themselves in some way. That we want, we might want them all for something else, like happiness, and we haven't defined what happiness is yet. I know I keep saying that, but I just want to make sure I remind ourselves and, and anyone listening of what we're up to here, right? That we there are things that have been said, things that have been hinted at, and things that have not yet been said. And we have not yet said what happiness is, might have been hinted at, like mm -hmm. with the idea of, well, we'll talk about contemplation later. That might be a hint. I don't know. But at any rate... Um, Oh, so, so it might be it's a good example then of an instrumental good, but it doesn't fit into the sort of three favored types of lives that he's what, by the way, do you know the origin of these th these three lives? It feels like he he took that from something, but I'm not sure where I don't know. I wonder if he's just sort of taken it from you know sometimes some of these arguments he's working with are based on what he would take to be either common sense or mm. just or common experience. Yeah, you know? so it's one of those, like, people say, you know, uh, you can live a life of pleasure, you can lead, like, a, um, a public life, or you can just sit in your house and think, uh, you know. Right. Yeah, okay, right. sure. Yeah, and, and you can see how money might be worth, might be useful for any of those things, mm. but, mm -hmm. but I can't imagine... I can't imagine even a Scrooge McDuck saying, no, the whole point of, of it is, is wealth just for the sake of wealth, right? People that want wealth want 
other things. The Koch brothers clearly want power, right? Mm -hmm. They don't just want money for the sake of money. They want power. Uh, some people want money for influence, they, uh, which is related to power, obviously. Uh, some people want money for pleasure. But, but I, don't, I can't think – I don't think it's too imaginable that really – when put to the test, someone would say, no, I want money just for the sake of money. And then I say, well, what if it was all devalued tomorrow, right? Mm -hmm. You still have the money, uh, but it's just it's worthless. The, then I get, they'd have to start going into some kind of weird argument about how, well, no, because when you take away the value, then it's no longer money. Mm. And, and, and you can see why they want to do that. But then, if, but then there's the point, right? They want the money for the value, and the value is not commensurate with the money. Um. Right, because if something changes, then the money is devalued. Yeah, yeah. So that's my hypothesis. Anyway, I think that's more than enough. I, I mean, this went a little long, but at the same time, I think it was worthwhile to get the the argument about the normal causative thing in there, a normative causal thing. Yeah, and that'll and, um, that'll be good to have in mind as we uh, move forward. Right, and and you know, if if the idea that happiness is is to some extent within the realm of politics and, and political science, then we can be reminded of how he started in chapter two when he said uh, that part of the point of the reason that politics winds up being kind of the highest of the sciences isn't uh, what Acro might say. It isn't that it just collects all the other sciences, but it, but it serves as a kind of regulator of all the sciences, mm -hmm. that part of what political science does is says, well, how much should we pursue health? How much should we pursue um, abstract thought? How much should we pursue uh, benevolence or whatever, right? That it, it kind of regulates things. So while it's not simply a composite of all those things, it's the kind of everything is done in relation to it. It's the kind of superstructure for for everything else and serves as the kind of normative guide hmm. that that you know there's nothing wrong with pleasure in itself but uh but if all you're concerned with is pleasure as we know that's how rome fell that's how a lot of societies fall right they become decadent and they become more about pleasure than anything else and then stuff doesn't get done mm -hmm. uh and and so um i think this idea of that kind of asymmetry that that the lower sciences, the lower pursuits provide a causal support for the higher pursuits and the higher pursuits provide a normative um, assessment of the lower pursuits. Mm -hmm. right? That's well put. And I think yeah. that'll, that'll be important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's stop here and take a break and go to a very tough chapter that we'll have to try to be <laughs> as, as brief with as we can. Uh, chapter six. <laughs>
right, book six. Book six is a, a, a brain full of information. It's, it's not easy to get your mind around in some ways. But the nice thing, I guess, about book six is the main points are made and then that's the end of it, right? This is his discussion of why the platonic form of the good doesn't really work. And he, as probably any Aristotelian knows, uh, he has a much more sustained argument against the platonic forms in the treatise The Metaphysics. So here he's just really trying to um, focus on why it doesn't work for our purposes here. So we're going to move fairly quickly, but I hope adequately through through the material. And it's a, it's useful, I guess, just to know that chapter six, if people think, oh, well, why does he even talk about Plato at all here? Like, uh, it's not it's not really that relevant later on in the book. But if we see this sort of structure that he set up from chapters four on, then we see he's basically um, starting with low-hanging fruit and then working his way to uh, to stuff that he, he sees as either more potentially convincing or a more powerful opponent. Um, and then, of course, uh, Plato and his followers are uh, close to him uh, geographically, of course, but also uh, that's where he, that's the world he comes out of. So he sees that right. as he's got he's to really um, take this down here. I think that's a really good point. I mean, ultimately, the audience for this would be students who are, are free, uh, right? They're, they're liberal arts students. They don't, they don't have to go into a craft. They might go into politics. They might go into philosophy. Uh, but they don't, they don't have to work in a factory or, or anything like that. They're, uh, they're, they have enough money. They're not slaves. They have enough money that they can pursue these higher uh, concerns and so on. That's his, his real audience. But that audience... Uh, he's talking to people that are not yet quite philosophers and yet that have a sort of philosophical bent. Uh, so he deals with both sort of common understandings. He always does that, right? He's always saying that that the, the common understandings of the world aren't wrong. They're just not complete in some fashion. They need to be worked out, right? That we're, that's part of his realism is we're not totally divorced from what really goes on. It's just uh, we have to focus our rational energies to, to get a clearer view. Um, and so this the chapter five, of course, was, was taking some candidates that would have been from the common run of, of people, like everyday thoughts about what happiness means, and he was defeating some of those. Uh, and now he's going to take on a much bigger form of game here, which is a more worked out theory of what happiness is and what the good is. And that's, of course, Plato's. And you're absolutely right, since he was more or less trained by Plato, right, uh, that this is close to his heart in various ways. And some people are dissatisfied with this chapter, not Ackroll or Kraut, but other people that I've read, uh, in that they feel that, that in some ways he's reinscribing a kind of form of the good. I don't think that's an adequate um, condemnation of Aristotle, but it's one that we can think about as we go along. That being said, there are things that are going to come, that, things that are sort of asides in this chapter will become important for the rest of the treatise. So it's not something we should skip it's 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 if, if you buy the argument i gave a bit ago that there are are purely utilitarian instrumental goods then there are things that are good in themselves and that contribute to further goods and then there's a, a good that's only good in itself that doesn't contribute to anything else this would be that middle category of this chapter right it, it has things that are good in themselves the critique of plato i think is good and interesting in itself but it also there are things that will contribute to the rest of the treatise hmm. So the first way in which he 
sort of dismisses the platonic form of the good is by saying that the form, the idea, is not of a series with prior and posterior elements, right? So there's no form of number. Plato does have a form of oneness. He has a form of the binary, of the ternary, but he doesn't have a form of number as such because then there would be sequence, there would be series, there would be things that are prior and things that are posterior, and that gives a sense of temporality, right? There's something almost Bergsonian about this, that, that numbers already bring in a sense of duration and temporality and, and so on, which doesn't surprise me because Bergson was clearly interested in, in certain aspects of Aristotle. Um. And so, so he, he argues against this, obviously. He says that, that uh, the good is spoken of in different ways, right? That, that it can be spoken of as, as substance, uh, like God or a human being, relation, uh, bigger than, smaller than, uh, or in relation to quality, right? Uh, pure or, or more corrupt and so on. Those would be qualities, right? Um, but the, then you're using them in different ways. And in fact, those latter two depend on and are thus posterior or, or less important to than the first, right? That if I'm saying, for instance, that, uh, uh, I don't know, this is stupid, but I'll say it anyway. Frank is a good man. He's just too hairy. <laughs> All right, so, so I, have, I have two different things. I've, I've assessed Frank on the level of, of his substantial being, right, that he's a good person, but I'm saying he's too hairy. I've given a quanti- qualitative and quantitative uh, way of saying that there's something about him that's not as pleasing or not as good. I'm, I'm being somewhat facetious, but you see the point here. Uh, that that when I'm saying good, I'm using it in two different, very different ways. Mm-hmm. And this is going to come back, so we don't have to linger. And, on and that. the goodness in his substance is, in some sense, prior to um, the goodness or lack thereof of his uh, qual- certain right. of his qualities. Yeah. Right, and that leads us to the second argument, which follows hard on the heels of that first one, which is that good is spoken of in many ways, as many ways as being, and thus applies to each of the categories. So this is a reference to Aristotle's very short uh, but very puzzling treatise, The Categories. It's, a, it's an incredible treatise and one that maybe Eric and I should go through at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically in that treatise he says, look, being can be spoken of in all sorts of different ways and that those ways are not just different forms of the same thing, but they are different categories of speaking of being. The most important one is substance, when we're talking about essences, about what a thing is. But there are 10 total. There's quality, there's quantity, there's the relative, there's time, place, being situated, having, doing, and being affected, right? Now, he doesn't mention all these in the Nicomachean Ethics, uh, those last uh, four he leaves out. But, but, you know, so if I'm speaking of, of substance and I'm saying, um, what is Chad? I'm asking, what is he essentially? What am I as an essence? I'm a human being, which means that I'm a rational animal, blah, blah, blah. If I'm speaking of quality, then I, the example he gives in the Nicomachean Ethics is the virtues, right? Which I think is telling against Ackroll, by the way, if we want a quick return to Ackroll, because if he's saying that the virtues are quality and quality is subordinate to substance, then the virtues are subordinate to whatever true happiness is, which would not be the virtues, right? So the virtues aren't, aren't the, we can't say that happiness simply is the composite of all virtues. At least that's how I'm reading it. I'm sure Ackroll would have an argument against that, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure what it would be. 
Then he says quantity, that's like the mean, right? Not too much, not too little. The relative, what's useful to something else, it's an example of the relative, and that's a good, right? Mm-hmm. Time, the opportune moment, the right time to do something, right? Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't tell your true love that you love her on the day of her wedding to someone else. That would be an inopportune moment, mm-hmm. right? Although plenty of movies do that exact thing. Place, the right situation, right? Mm-hmm. You probably don't, don't talk about, I don't know, how you want to go see a movie at someone's funeral. You know, there are things that are just inappropriate in certain situations. Now, he leaves out the others, like I said, being situated, which is like your position. So the book is lying on the table or I'm standing up. Those are that's positionality. Right. Um, it's, and, and I guess the good there would be contingent. Right. It's good to lie down if you're trying to sleep. It's good to stand up if you're trying to walk. Um, having is another one, right? Uh, that, that I can have something, uh, versus not having something doing is the ninth category. And the 10th is being affected, like being cut or being punched or, or being caressed. doesn't have to be bad things. Um, now remember that the point of all this is that these are categories for different ways of talking about being. So he's doing something that he hasn't yet argued but that is already here and implicit that somehow happiness, the good, the true good, is on par with being. And I think that's going to be important for us later. And I don't know that I, I feel the commentators I read, at least, I don't feel like they always emphasize this as much as they should. But I think it's a really important moment hmm. that in some way and, and maybe they don't because maybe it's obvious to them. Since happiness has already been defined as flourishing, which would mean being well, right? So, of course, happiness and being are going to be related in some way. But, but what he's doing now is he's spelling out that they're related in a very structural sense. That just like being is divided into various categories, that happiness, or the good rather, the good, not happiness exactly, but, but the good uh, can be divided into various categories. And now that I'm thinking of it, in a way, the ones that he mentions, they are all going to play a pretty big role in the treatise, uh, sort of less as we go along. But we could think of substance as being true happiness, right? That that's everything else contributes toward that. So yeah. whatever happiness so if you is. Are, if you are happy uh, in that sort of substantial way, simply what you are, a definitive of what you are, that's your substance. That's probably the, exactly. highest, the highest form for him. Yeah. Right. Although and then the other... is, I, I'm just sort of curious now because uh, he, he is talking about a plurality of ways of talking about goodness and, you know, and yes. being if we're talking about the yes. categories. But there's also an ordering here yes. which suggests there's, just, there's not really a plurality. There's just one highest kind of happiness or, or the good, which would be the substantial kind. Well, let's 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 dig into that a bit. I'm mm-hmm. not sure I agree. Um, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna put forward a sort of way of looking at it that I think shows that that's not the case, and then you can clarify your point by showing me where I err or whatever. <laughs> but uh, but it, uh, I think I see what you're saying. What I think you're saying is that since everything is subordinate to substance, that um, that there's still one organizing matrix of the thing and all those other things are part of it so in other words you're kind of offering an acral kind of reading here mm-hmm. but uh, but let me give an, uh, another way of of dealing with the issue and then show how that might be read in a non-acral manner um when we say that things are good based on qualities right 
we can imagine, for instance, quality, one quality might be uh, attraction, right? Someone is attractive. Attractiveness, I should say, not attraction, but attractiveness, right? Mm -hmm. We all know that there are plenty of good-looking serial killers and plenty of good-looking thieves and, and good-looking uh, corrupt people, right? So just because they're good-looking and they have goodness in that quality doesn't mean that they're good as substances, so, uh, and, and, you know, somebody might be very wealthy and, it, and, it's, and so they have the good of having, and yet they're to, they use that wealth for egregious purposes, right? And so as a substantial being, as a substance, as an essence, they're bad, right? So in that sense, you could imagine almost, yeah, I think you could imagine um, a person who has good qualities in the sense of, uh, of, of some of the good qualities, obviously not all the good qualities, uh, is, is, has the right kind of quantity, not too thin, not too big, uh, not too wealthy, not too poor, however you want to think of it, right? Has all these things that in, in, the, in the lesser of the, of the categories has things that are good and yet not be good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, you could say that Ackroyd could win this by saying, well, yeah, but, but uh, Aristotle clearly has these in an order. Quality is the second highest. And he has said that quality is the virtues, is commensurate with the virtues when we're talking about ethics. And so, therefore, in order to be a substantially good being, in order to be a being that is good, then you have to have good, those good qualities, the, the specified ones, the virtues, and that the truly good person would have all of those. So there is a way for Ackerel to, to have an argument here. But what I don't think is the case is that you can't have some kind of situation where a bad substance still has good qualities or good quantities or whatever else. So there's sort of a dependence relation um, here, uh, that at least ties everything to the substance, um, but m- makes them remain important. We can't just dismiss uh, quali- right. quality or um, or the location or quantity or anything like that. Right. Yeah. And, and I think he also, you know, I mean, there is, if we take two of the subordinate ones, let's take the first two, quality and, and quantity. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or maybe it's easier to go even further down the line and, and use time and place. Like, uh you could see how good operates differently there. That that when I'm talking about a good place for, I don't know, let's keep a happy subject, a good place for a wedding and a good time for a wedding, those are two different factors. They, they both contribute to having a good wedding, but they're not the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you could find the greatest place in the world let's say that that you really want to be married on on a beach but you probably don't want to be married on the beach in winter during a terrible storm Mm -hmm. an ice storm or something right so so the criteria for the place and the criteria for the good uh, i'm sorry for the place and for the time with respect to the good are different Hmm. and and not really commensurate in that way now all of them can contribute to the good of the substance i agree with that part of what you're saying but how they contribute is the question and that and that's I, important there. Incommensurability then, I guess, is the is the way in which we we can't just say it all reduces to substantial uh, goodness, um, since these other forms of goodness are important, but they're also incommensurate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. 
All right, so that's the tough one. The rest are easy, right? He says he says that Plato's uh, form of the good also fails because there's no single science of the good. If we want to understand the good with respect to health, we study medicine. If we want to understand the good with respect to uh, getting along with each other, we stu study politics. If we want to uh, uh, study, you know, um, the good when it comes to the battlefield, we look at strategy. So there's no science where we just study the good yeah. and then apply it to all these other things. Yeah. So knowledge of goodness per se, whatever that is, is not good enough. Uh, so because it right. always depends on proficiency. Uh, yeah. The good doctor will not be a great military strategist. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now the next one's the toughest one in my opinion, um, and because it's it's a it's an interesting one. He says, what does so-and-so itself even mean, <laughs> right? Like to say the thing in itself, basically, right? So good in itself, which is what the form of the good is supposed to be. And the form of man is supposed to be man in itself. But what does that even mean? How does the form of man differ from man as such? And he doesn't mean you or me necessarily, but you or me insofar as we're a man, insofar as we're a human being. If, if you say what is human about Eric and you list all the things – then how's that different from listing all the things that are human about the form of the human? Hmm. And so what, uh, in my mind, what Aristotle is saying is not that there's no such thing as essences, because obviously he does believe there are essences. He just believes that they operate differently. What he thinks seems to me to be saying here is that this is superfluous. If I can just abstract from all of the people and say, here's what makes these things human beings and not dolphins or whatever else then I don't need there to be an actually subsisting form of the good because it amounts to the same information. Hmm. And since I never can see the actual form of the good, all I do is get a glimmer of what that would be through abstraction, right? So in other words, he's got – he basically, it's not quite inductive-deductive, but it's similar, right? Because basically Plato, in his metaphysics, his idea is that we were all together in the great – sort of Parmenidian one, and that's where we were, we were exposed to all the forms, and we saw them directly. And so when we see something in this world that's a human or a dolphin or good or virtuous, then we understand that thing because we have a pre-knowledge of it in its pure form, and so now we see it in a non-pure form, the world of becoming, and we recognize it. So that's a sort of top-down model. It's not quite deduction, but it's, it's a top-down model. You saw it in this other form of existence in its purity, so the, the perfect form of man, then I'm born and I live and I see Eric and I recognize he's another human being because I was exposed to pure human beingness gotcha. in the form. Whereas Aristotle's saying the opposite. No, the reason we have a notion of what a human being is is because we have all this experience with other human beings and we abstract from it. So there, there doesn't have to be a form that actually exists that we experience. Because Aristotle doesn't believe in reincarnation the way that Plato does. Um, so, so just and, to be clear that I understand this. Yeah. So for Plato, it's independent. The form um, exists a, apart from the particular instances of it. Um, so that's why they always use the word, people always use the word participate when something participates in the form of something. Because it's almost like you're sort of joining in in some separate thing that's already out there. Like you're joining, you're a participant in a party, you're a party goer or you're participating in an election, you're a voter, or something like that. Um, is, so it, it's a, it's a separate, is that what he's arguing against, is the separability of the, of the forms? 
Who's arguing against oh, that? Oh, uh, that Aristotle is arguing against the um, the sort of independence here. Of, yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And and you can, uh, I mean, you can have a little sympathy for why Plato wants what he wants. He wants mm-hmm. there to be actual knowledge, not just uh, doxa. He wants actual episteme. Mm-hmm. And since, since you know, if if my understanding of humans is only the humans that I've met, then there, then you know, I may make all sorts of assumptions about what humans are. Let's say that I only met nasty people, and I just think part of the essential nature of humans is nastiness, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, then, then you could see why Plato's saying, "Well, but you still recognize it because of this other experience." But that's a lot of freight to to bring on board here. You know, that's a lot of that's a lot of luggage to carry around. This idea of this whole other form of existence that we've participated in that none of us remember mm-hmm. uh, that yeah. that makes it so that we understand this form of existence. Whereas Aristotle feels to me like his feet are more firmly planted on the ground, you know. I I have this existence. How do I make sense of it? And what's the manner of doing so? You can and, you and, can kind of see where the the skeptics eventually came out of um, Plato's Academy, and you can kind of see how because he set such a such a high bar for knowing something, right? Like, uh, there just can't be room for any error or change at all if we if we are to say that we truly know something. So then it's just right. so easy to. I mean, you can take the Aristotelian approach, which I think you and I can safely say we're more likely to do. Um, uh, but you could also just say take take Plato as being right, and that there is a high bar for knowledge, and then say well, and then therefore knowledge is impossible. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And I think that's part of what Aristotle was up to when he was talking about how you can't expect more from a science than the science can give you. Hmm. You know. Yeah. Um, and and that's true across the board. I think for Aristotle that that you can't have the kind of knowledge that Plato wants to have in reality. You you can't shore it all up in that way. You can get you can get toward first principles and, and maybe even grasp certain first principles or maybe even all of them eventually. I don't know. It's not clear to me that that Aristotle would rule that out of court, certainly. I, I don't think he would. But the idea is that, that you're sort of groping your way toward it. It's not – I mean, in a way, we might say Plato cheats a little bit. It's like, oh, you don't remember this, but you actually know everything. And, and the other reason that you um, – you, learn math isn't because you're learning math but you're remembering what you already knew and now i don't it gets you out of all sorts of uh acquisition problems Mm -hmm. right like like how do i learn something and then apply that to other things that i wasn't taught um directly you know and and plato's answer for that is well because you were taught all that stuff before you were born and and in a way that's sort of a cheat because uh, then you don't have to work very hard after that. You just say, "Well, there, that's that's your explanation." And and you know, as much as I like, let's say the the Phaedrus and and uh, by by um, Plato, uh, it's a big fantasy. Like we're all riding horses. Some of us go a little higher than others, and so we see virtue very well. Others don't see it as well, and so we have a lesser. And so the that determines what kind of person we're going to be on this world, in this world, and so on. Uh, it's a big myth that he's putting forward. And, and Aristotle, while I wouldn't say he doesn't traffic a myth at all, he uses it in a very interesting way. We'll see that with the argument from divinity later, not today, but later, uh, where he does sort of present this mythical view of gods. But he does it in a very – he's not really – he's using it as an, an, an analogy, not an explanatory um, uh, device. Hmm. 
All right. Then it gets really easy, I think. Uh, one of the things that Plato wants, of course, is for the form of the human to be eternal, that, that it's always it's immutable. It's always the same, and it never changes, never dies. And Aristotle says, well, that adds nothing to the... Uh, something that's white for one day is still as white as something that lasts forever. White is white, right? And so it does, the eternality of it doesn't add anything. Hmm. Then he shifts to the idea of the Pythagoreans. He says, actually, the Pythagoreans are closer to the right thing than 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 Plato, uh, because they think that that unity is subordinate to the good rather than the opposite. Right? Yeah, it's just one in a list of goods or something along those right, lines. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And he said, and the clincher for him is even Susippus, if I'm saying that correctly, mm-hmm. believes that. And Susippus, of course, was Plato's cousin, I guess, or nephew, and he took <laughs> over the the academy after Plato died, not Aristotle, which, you know, I don't think was a point of contention. Aristotle was never in line for it. But uh, but he says, you know, even Susippus believes this rather than his own uh, upbringing and, and, and thought. And now we get uh, we get that this division I was talking about before. He says, we should divide useful goods from things good for their own sake. And maybe only uh, the latter was was Plato's concern, right? That Plato was only interested in things that were good for their own sake. So he's he, at the last minute here. He's saying, "Let's let's think about this again," because maybe Plato doesn't mean to be quite as absurd as he seems, right? That that if we're saying anything that's good is subordinate to the form of the good, then that would include wealth, that would include a nice haircut, all, all sorts of trivial things, right? Mm. And he says, let's not let's not assume Plato means that. Maybe he only means things that are good in themselves. Yeah, Intrin- so, basically intrinsic goods. Intrinsic goods, mm-hmm. honor, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the various virtues, mm-hmm. uh, pleasure as well, right? Uh, things that are intrinsic goods. And so then he's got a he's got to examine this and, and notice his examples of of things that are good in themselves, which I think is telling and interesting. Um, he says some pleasures, not all pleasures. Mm-hmm. He says prudence, which makes sense, honor, which makes sense. But he includes sight. That sight is good in itself, mm. right? It has an aesthetic value that, that, yeah, we look to make sure we don't get run over by cars. We're, we're looking out, right, and make sure we don't bump into things. But we also look at a sunset just to look at the sunset. Uh, not to navigate, not to, to find our way in the world, but just to enjoy the sunset. So there's at least some element of sight that's good in itself. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so what he means by this is that uh, that a good can be good in its own right and at the same time contribute to a higher good. And sight's a good example of that in the way I just laid it out, mm-hmm. that that sight contributes to me getting where I need to be. I don't trip over things. I don't get run over by cars. I don't bump into doorways. But it also can be good in itself. So now we have the three, the tripartite division I was talking about. There are some things that are only useful for other things like money. There are some things that are useful for other things, but also good in themselves, like sight. And that might be on a continuum. Sight is probably mostly good for other things, but every now and then we stop and just look at a painting or a sunset or whatever and enjoy sight purely for the for the purpose of yeah. sight. And this would have been and, even more obvious for people in his time because I don't think they had glasses, right? So people are constantly sort of slowly going blind and they're oh, recogni- recognizing yeah, how important sight is. Right. But I'm assuming he would say that honor and prudence are higher than sight, that we mm-hmm. enjoy them for themselves, even though they're also good for other things. If you're prudent, if you know how to, to be uh, 
you know, you sort of reserve judgment. You, uh, uh, you're balanced in your assessment of things. You're not rash and so on. You're prudent. Then that contributes to you running a better household and so on. It contributes to happiness, but it's also good in its own right. You're a calmer person if you're prudent than you would be otherwise. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of continuum continuum here, I think. Um, yeah, I can and so, see that. And, and, and that's yeah. the second category, right? You were saying they're only instrumental goods, then they're the goods that are partly useful, but also partly in themselves. And then we get to the in, intrinsic, uh, just right. in themselves. Yeah. And now we have something that is implied, but isn't said yet. And, and Eric might even argue that it's not even implied. And, and there's space for that, obviously. We'll see what he says. But it seems to me that there's an implication here. That notice that honor and prudence, those are both virtues, and they're both mentioned here. So they're mentioned separately. And I think that, again, this is a sort of, not exactly anti-Acral. Acral could have a way of dealing with this, but I don't think as well as he might, right? That, that in essence, honor and prudence are not the same thing. They're both virtues, but they're not, they're not simply collapsed into virtue. But they have different qualitative aspects, right? They're not the same thing via different routes, mm. that they're good in themselves. And so to me, this is an important thing here, because eventually we're going to get to books eight and, and nine and so on, where he's talking about friendship. And I think he's setting that up to a certain extent here, that what we're talking about are not interchangeable things, that, you, that you're not going to be happy if you just have honor but no prudence, or if you just have prudence but no honor. Right. Um, and, and I don't know that there's a calculation for the right mix either, but that that you have to use these things in the right way. They're not really interchangeable. And he's going to say something similar about friends that you don't want just any friend. You want the right friend. And that if you have more than one, it's not that that you can hang out with either of them and get the same thing out of it. Me hanging out with you is very different from me hanging out with one of our mutual friends, let's say Matt, who, if, you, if he's listening, you just got a shout out, Matt, uh, right? That, that, that there's a qualitative difference there. It's not that, that one's better than the other, but that I don't get the same thing, whatever that is, out of hanging out with Matt as I get out of hanging out with you and vice versa. So that there's something here that is inherent in the specifics of the things. And like I said, I think that's just hinted at here, but I think it's, it's useful. So then the question becomes, what is the good and how do we use the term? And he, he gives us two options, that, that we could be using it in a homonymous uh, fashion, that we're just using the same word for very different things, right? Yeah. Um, right. So uh, I'm trying to think. Here's a, I don't know if is the example of a chair um, a good enough one where, uh, for example, you could be the chair of a department or you could sit on a chair. Uh, presumably you're right. sitting That's on, good, yeah. So you wouldn't be sitting on the chair of the department. <laughs> right. That would be pretty funny if you did, right? So, and yet we use those. And in fact, we use the, the chair as the chair of the department because of metonymy, right? Because the chair sits in the chair and it's supposed to be a chair of power in that sense, that the chair is the seat of power. And so you can see it as mm. this set of uh, 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 metonymous relationships. But yeah, that's a great example of a kind of uh, homonymous relationship, right? And, and so that's one possibility. But there's another possibility, which is that what we're talking about is analogy. And that's what I think he's plumping for here. And that because the good, or rather being, is used that way as well. Be, being applies to all 10 categories, but not in the exact same way, but not also not in a totally unrelated way, as, as Eric already pointed out, that there's a kind of 
causal normative relationship. There's a contributory contributory relationship involved, um, and so when we're talking about being, we're talking about that which is, and there are different ways in which that which is can come about or can be, and that's what the categories is trying to capture. That. Having is a type of being. I have a relationship with the book that's in my lap right now, right? Uh, that I am being in some way with this book. That having is a, a being with. But that's different than being uh, in relation to qualities that I have or quantities that I have, which is different from uh, my being as a substance and yet not unrelated. Now, here's where I think we can make an interesting connection with what's coming soon. Uh, which is the function argument, that we could say then that seeing is the good of the eye, just like cutting is the good of the of the knife, just like uh, good acts or, or a better society is the good of virtue, just like um, a well-run household is the good of prudence and so on. So good is here analogous in the sense that what we're saying is that that each of these things is good because they are the good of the thing that they relate to. And then you start and to that, notice with analogies, similarities. Um, there's a related, they're related in their, I guess, definitions or however you want to put it. Right. Yeah. Now, if we have particularly good eyesight, what do we say? We say we have excellent eyesight. If we, if we have a knife that cuts really well, we say we have an excellent knife. And excellence, as we know, the Greek word, arete, same word as virtue, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or at least can be used as virtue. And, and, it can, and we're talking about the kind of flourishing, the being well. So here he's making a very clear connection, I think, between happiness and being. That happiness is being well. We still haven't defined exactly what it is. But we have the general sense that it's being well. We're refining what that might mean. And that has to do with function again, right? That, that happiness for us has to pertain to our being as a human being. Being the best human being we can be. Being well. Doing well. Living well. Uh, and so, so the good is being well. And we just have to figure out what that is for a human being, which we haven't yet done. True. But obviously the good of sight, the good of the being of sight, is a clear view, pers perspicacity of, of, of seeing things clearly. The good of a knife is that it cuts well, that it's not dull, it doesn't hesitate, it, it leaves a knife, right? So each thing is, is dealing with how this thing does what it does well. You, you, have, so to, you we, have to human well. Right, exactly, exactly. I think mean, that's a great a great uh, placeholder for now, right? And so we're just about to end, but I do want to bring up one other thing. Notice that he returns then at the end of the chapter to this archer target discussion, but now he uses it against the form of the good. And this is a real question, Eric. I don't know the answer to it. So earlier in the book, in the first couple chapters, he said, we need to know what is good for a human being because just like an archer, we're going to do better if we have a target to aim at. So if the idea is that we're aiming for happiness and we know what happiness is, we're more likely to hit that target. That makes perfect sense. But now he makes the argument that the form of the good doesn't make sense because no one seems to, to need the form of the good in order to do things well, right? So it's not like – and he's talking about craftsmen as his examples, but we can apply it to whatever. But let's, let's use his example. So the, the painter who wants to make good paintings – doesn't study the form of the good in order to make good paintings. But why not? If, if the idea is that 
that having the target is going to make you better at the thing and you want to make good paintings, then shouldn't you know all about what the good is? And he says that doesn't seem to be necessary, right? So has he and – and I know uh, – this is a spoiler, I guess, but I know he doesn't give up the archer target argument because it comes up again in the chapter that we're going to come to – I can't remember if it's chapter 7, but if it's not, it's shortly after 7. Um, so it's a, a chapter we're going to be talking about soon. So he doesn't give it up, but here he's saying – I mean I might be tempted to say, well, yeah, shouldn't the painter – and the and the doctor and so on shouldn't they study what the good is uh, so that they have a sense of but but he says well the doctor doesn't that's another of examples the doctor doesn't contribute to human health as such the doctor is interested in Eric's human health when it's Eric that is the patient or my human health when I'm the patient that it's about the particular um, not the general but couldn't we make the argument that well okay but don't you have to kind of know what proper functioning is before you can encourage proper functioning. I mean, just to give an example that's directly out of my life right now, I'm having a lot of arm problems, probably carpal tunnel and tendonitis and who knows what else. And so I'm about to see a doctor. Don't, do I expect that doctor to say, well, let's just look at you, Chad, as an isolated being and try to figure this out? Or do I expect the doctor to say, well, this is how arms function. You have carpal tunnel because something's going wrong with the way your arm is functioning, and this is the best we can do to approximate proper functioning. So why this target? Why, why are we being dismissive now of this target here when it comes to the form of the good? Um, I'm not sure I could answer it myself, but it sounds to me like it, it rides on this issue of a kind of expertise or proficiency being more of a bottom-up process, uh, one that de okay. de depends on basically figuring out what exactly your target is in the first place, and you can't just learn what targets are in general and then you know and then find it. You know, you, maybe you're, maybe you would be if we're doing the if we're going to keep following this uh, this image of the person with the um, with the bow and arrow, um, you know, they they might be told uh, well generally when you're on the battlefield, uh, the target is another person. Right. Uh, so targets are people. And then you just go. So then you go to target practice and you look around and you see some people there. And so then that's what you start aiming for. Uh, you know, uh, basically, you, you've you've got to have I think that it rides on this issue of expertise in some sense, though I'm not sure I could uh, articulate it much. Yeah. And also, you know, first principles can't be proven. Hmm. They're sort of assumed. So we we assume things about human health as first principles, and then work toward that in in medicine, right? Um, and and so there might be a sense in which again the acral kraut thing comes up because maybe the idea is that well the good for health is human health, which is mm -hmm. executed through treating individuals, e even if it is with an eye toward how humans function and so on. Obviously, it's with an eye toward how humans function, but it stays within that realm. Uh, you don't need to know the the proper answer to the good within medicine. You need to know the proper answer to the good within political science and, and how to live your life, how to flourish. Uh, but that that's a separate thing. Or maybe that's too fine. Maybe I'm quibbling now just to try to justify something that I have to admit confuses me a little. Well, it could, it could come down to a, an ambiguity in Aristotle's thought itself. Or may, um, again, I'm not sure if it's an ambiguity exactly, but there's this uh, distinction we talked about in an earlier episode between something that's known to us and something that's um, you know, uh, known without qualification or known by nature. Right. And there 
there might be just at least two, possibly three distinctions kind of getting bundled together there that, uh, you know, Aristotle sometimes implicitly teases apart and maybe leaves it for us to figure out how they how they relate. So one of the distinctions is something that's familiar to us versus something that just is such a way in itself, right? So this is the sort of um, realism idea that something appears to us versus something simply is a certain way. Um, then there's also this idea of knowledge, right? We know something by experience, um, or we know something as necessarily true given certain conditions, right? So we can sort of follow the logic of it. And that's the kind of, con- maybe that's contingency versus necessity, or however you want to put it. There's this kind of you know, uncertain um, knowledge that builds up over time versus something that is quasi-mathematical in form. Hmm. Um, and then there's the sort of background, the platonic background that we might incorporate here of becoming and being, that something that's known to us is sort of in the realm of becoming, something that's known by nature is in the realm of being, and that might be tied then to the um, the highest good in the platonic sense. And mm. I'm, I'm not sure how easily I could tear apart all these all these things, but uh, it does seem like there's that that ambiguity and possibly even this argument between the, the dominant and inclusivist uh, interpretations, it might even come down to how to how to handle Aristotle's distinction between what's known to us and what's known by nature. Hmm. But I'm yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, well, I'll, I'll keep thinking. Yeah, about it. yeah. And there's another possibility that's related to what you just said that that knowing the good as such might not be as important as uh, for the function of a doctor as knowing the good with respect to health. And knowing the good as such is not that important to a general so much as knowing the good with respect to victory in battle and so on. And mm-hmm. so they, they know the good, but within the circumscribed realm of their science, whereas political science has to be interested in the good as such. And so he, that's how he has uh, – that, that still then makes me ask you know, why he's sort of using this target argument against Plato. But maybe the distinction is that, that – Plato's suggesting that each of these, or maybe suggesting that each of these forms is something that we should study separately in order to um, live well or whatever. And Aristotle's saying, well, no, it's not about a form that we study in order to do generalship and doctoring well, but rather uh, it's not a separate form at all. I'm, I'm now talking myself in circles. But it's the it's the idea that that there's still a target. It's just the way that we arrive at it is not from something that we can sort of read a treatise on. Here's the form of the good. There you go. Apply it. But rather something we have to grip our way toward in the way that he's doing. Hmm. I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. Well, this is a good good place to end then. A, a lack of lack of certainty on both of our parts. Yeah. <laughs>